0: We've been looking at Jesus' teaching about how God intends us to live. I was thinking about this morning, really it's a whole philosophy of life that's just radically different from the way we see the world now. Um, And we're taking time to unpack that paragraph by paragraph, basically. I make no apologies for going slowly through it, because I really believe that the way that Jesus envisages human existence is the way that God meant it to be. That actually, if we want to flourish, we want to be people who flourish, who are everything God created us to be, and please him, and live at peace with him and with each other, then the way that Jesus taught us to live is the way we should do it. In fact, it's the only way we can do it. Uh, It's a vision that's rooted, first of all, in humility and grace. So everything I'm going to say afterwards has to be seen in that light. It's rooted, nothing Jesus says is designed to condemn anybody. Jesus says himself in John 3.17, the Son of Man, that's himself, Jesus, did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Nothing Jesus says is designed to condemn anyone. What it's designed to do is to show that each one of us needs to come and say, actually, God, I'm broken and I need your help to be fixed. So Jesus begins everything he says by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who come and say, actually, God, I know that I mess up. And I need your grace to put me back together. That's actually the gospel. The gospel is that God made the world, that we break the world... And that Jesus came to fix the world. That's the gospel. And it's true for each one of us. God made me. I break me by choosing to act selfishly and pridefully. And Jesus came to fix me. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And it is built, on again, on an idea of um, flowing out from that, of uh, sin, of the problem with humanity that we break our relationships with each other and with God that's not based on a set of rules where you say, I I kept that rule and I didn't keep that rule and I nearly kept that rule and I kept that rule rule really well so in the end I'm sort of 52-48 in favour of me winning or, you know, it's not like Wimbledon where you think, I've I've won two sets because I kept the first two and I've lost two sets because I kept the second two so I have a decider, you shan't covet your neighbour's horse well, I've never wanted a horse in my life, I'm in You know, it's not that kind of rules-based system. What he's saying is actually there is a sickness that lies within people that causes us to tend to break our relationships. That's what we call sin. That propensity within us that even with all the good we can do, we still mess things up. And, uh, And actually that God has come in order to change us, to remove that from us. To take any guilt that, that accompanies that, so we do wrong things and they have to be punished. To take away the guilt of that, and that's what the cross is about partly. And then to heal us, so that that propensity to do wrong is removed and the design of God, which is that we do right, is, is flourishing. That's Jesus' vision for humanity in two minutes. So we've seen how he addresses... And we set out that broad picture. He then moves on to address big problems that we have. The biggies, the big ways that we mess up our relationships with each other and with God. So he goes through the first two. The first two are murder. And Jesus says the thing about murder is it's not really about murder. It's really about anger. I don't want to ask, have you killed anybody? I want to ask, why do people kill people? The reason they kill people is because they get angry and they despise others and they act scornfully and pridefully. And if actually any of those things are in your heart, then you're already travelling down that line. Now you might not reach the destination where you actually kill someone, but you're already moving that way. If I can put it this way, you've got the same sickness in your heart as someone who kills someone, it's just that for them it's progressed further. And what Jesus says is actually God's come to take away that sickness in your heart. He doesn't want us to be people who are angry, who are scornful, who are prideful with each other. He wants us to be people who seek reconciliation and peace. Then he moves on to the question of lust. Now, lust is one that uh, we struggle with now because we're so liberated sexually in our society. But Jesus says the problem with lust is that really what you're doing is that you're using one another. Again, it's entirely self-centred. It's not about giving oneself to somebody else. It's about taking that person, imagining them, using them as an object to please me. They're little more than an object of my fantasy. That's what lust is. It's taking someone and making them simply an object that's used to please me. And Jesus says when you do that, you're already down the same path that leads people to adultery. That's the same path. You may not get there, you may not actually uh, sleep with someone you're not supposed to, but the same sickness that provokes people to sleep with people they're not supposed to, provokes us, it starts with us imagining that person and using them for our own pleasure. So Jesus says, so don't do it, don't use each other for your own pleasure. And we started to unpack how God's vision for humanity is not that we use one another, but that we work together. So it goes right back to Genesis 1. The kind of archetype of what humanity is meant to be. It says God made man and woman, woman, men and women, he made them in his image. And then together they are given the project of filling the earth and ruling the earth. They're given to one another. And then it's reinforced in Genesis 2. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. The idea that actually instead of competing with each other and using one another, they give give themselves to one another. And that's the vision that God has for humanity. It goes beyond sex and marriage. It's actually the vision for how people live. I'm just recapping now what happened in the last couple of weeks. Then he, he wants to move on, past sex, and he's going to turn to trust. So this is the third way. If I can put it, this is the third way the relationships break down. They break down through anger and bitterness and despising. They break down through us using one another to please ourselves. And then they break down through lack of trust, faithlessness, and being untrustworthy. And he does this by transitioning through um, one category that bridges the two, and then moving to trust. And we're going to see what that is. So as with we last week, we're going to read from several bits of the Bible. I've included readings from the Old Testament, that's writings that came before Jesus, to show that Jesus' vision for humanity is rooted in our understanding of who God really is. All of this is really about God. And because it's about God, it's also about us. And then I've included some uh, later writings to Jesus' early followers to reflect on what his teaching means in practice. So, you don't need to turn to these, I'm just going to put them up on the screen. To illustrate who we understand God to be. Because that's really the big question in life. Granted that we reason ourselves towards God, and God reveals himself to us. Who actually is he? And therefore who are we? This is what the psalmist, the ancient poets, say about God. It says, The word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Again, I've just picked, not random, but I've picked three or four just to illustrate. The work of God's hands are faithful and just, all his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in faithfulness and uprightness. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. There's four paragraphs. You get, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but it becomes repetitive. Over and over and over again, the same thing comes through. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. So then what does Jesus say? Well, this is Matthew chapter 5 and verses 31 to 37. It's been said... Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. (laughs) Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, Don't break your oath, but fulfil to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, don't swear an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And don't swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Let me get Richard to read us a a final reading from 1 Corinthians 11. This is St Paul writing about what Jesus said just before he died. Uh. You can uh, you can read it on there if you want. Oh, um. oh yeah, sorry. I'll just bring that forward for you. So one Corinthians chapter eleven eleven verse twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after the supper he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thanks, Richard. Okay. If you've got a Bible, keep it open at Matthew 5, verse 31 to 37. That's where we're going to be looking. Societies and individual relationships require trust to survive. If I don't trust you, I can't fully do business with you. I can't raise children with you. I can't work with you. I can't plan with you. We need to be able to trust one another. It's part of what it means to be human. It's part of what it means to live in a community is to trust one another. Um, If you look around this church, we... You can see that operating exactly as we, uh, as I've illustrated, right? You're all sitting in chairs, what, uh, the, apart from people sat right at the back, everybody else has got somebody sitting behind them. At a very, very basic level, you are trusting them not to whip out a knife and stab you in the back. <laughs> okay? Now that's a ridiculous illustration. But I- I'm doing it just to make the point that even a thing as simple as coming to church on a Sunday and sitting down in lines requires trust, We we miss it most of the time because it's such a basic requirement for living as human beings. The converse is also true. If we want people to trust us, we need to be trustworthy. We need to do what we say. Trustworthiness, faithfulness, reliability, commitment, these all mean roughly the same thing. They're qualities that are both good, because they reflect God's character, and necessary... For human beings to flourish. Yet trust and faith, uh, faithfulness frequently break down. I mean, anybody who's read the news over the last three years, this comes up time and time again. Uh, I was going to pick out news stories, but there are so many of them, it was almost not worth it. That people don't trust one another. There's a big breakdown in trust in society trust in uh, leaders, trust in economists, trust in uh, 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 parents trust in churches, trust generally. People don't trust one another. They break down at a societal level, and they break down on a personal level. I want to help us to think about what Jesus says about this, by looking first at the way we approach commitment, and then at the way that God does, and seeing the differences between the two and actually how it is that we're designed to live. Every week I give a, a lunchtime summary and I've been asked to put it on the screen. So I'm going to put it on the screen and leave it there. God is absolutely faithful and trustworthy and he wants us to be the same. It's a very simple idea. God is absolutely faithful and trustworthy and he wants us to be the same. Absolutely faithful and and trustworthy and he wants us to be the same. That's the big point I'm driving home. So how does trust break down in human relationships? Well, it's tempting to look at the breakdown of trust in a relationship or a society and immediately go to the instances where someone broke a promise. We notice when people say that they will do something and don't do it or vice versa. I mean, that Is obvious, isn't it? If you keep promising your child that they will receive a PlayStation for eating their dinner up, and the PlayStation never appears, then after a while that child is going to realise that daddy does not mean it when he says there's a PlayStation appearing. And soon, trust will break down, and the relationship will break down. It's a good starting point, but I want to suggest it doesn't actually go far enough. Trust starts to break down long before someone technically breaks a promise. I'm going to explain why. Trust begins to break down when we start to see our relationships with each other and our commitments to each other in a self-centred and self-protecting way. It begins to break down when we see our relationships in a way that puts ourselves first and seeks to protect ourselves first and foremost. What I mean by this is that we can start to develop the mindset of really looking out for ourselves even when we're dealing with someone else. Because our primary desire to protect ourselves and get what we can from the relationship... We then define our obligations as tightly and narrowly as possible. Have I really promised to do X or am I free to do Y? We draw a rigid line around what we've agreed to do and then we pursue our own interests right up to the point of that line. We set out what the promise actually is. What am I actually committed to doing you? What am I bound to do for you and what can I do for myself? And I'll make the thing I've I've committed to do for you as small as possible to give me maximum scope for pleasing myself. We also widen the range of ways that we don't have to do the thing we said we would. Well, I never said I'd be there on a Sunday. I never said I'd be there in the morning. I never said I'd be there in the afternoon. I never said I'd be there... I never said I'd call every day. I never said I'd call every week. I just said I'd call. We might not technically have broken our promise or gone back on what we said, but we do everything but that. We make that as small as possible and the scope for ourselves as big as possible. It's actually how the law works. You can probably tell from this that I'm thinking of contract law. The law works by drawing closely defined boundaries around what people are bound to do do, and then allowing people to act as selfishly as they can outside those boundaries. That makes for very, very good law. Actually, when you try and and require people to love one another in companies' law, it doesn't work at all. Okay, You you can't require that because you can't enforce it. The law works by saying you're only bound to do that which you've promised to do and only exactly what you've promised to do. And you're free to do whatever you like elsewhere. Good law, but a terrible way to live. A long way from what God designed human relationships to be like. Leads to a range of unimpressive results. Jesus picks up on two of them. Okay? The first, he takes the, 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 most, uh, the clearest example of two people promising something to each other. Two people committing something to each other, which is marriage. And then he expands it and talks about everyone else. So the first bit he looks at is Marriage. If you've got your Bible open, this is uh, chapter 5, verse 31 to 32. Well, you notice several things. First of all, Jesus is not setting out an exhaustive treatment of the, the grounds for divorce in marriages. That's not the point at all. He's not setting out to condemn anybody who has been divorced. That you will see, if you look at it carefully, that he actually, he treats, he's basically concerned with the person who treats his promises, and it was always a man, in marriage as entirely disposable and the other person as entirely disposable. That's the context of what he's saying. The Bible I'm saying this up front because the Bible has an awful lot to say about marriages and when what happens when they break down and relationships and what happens when they break down. And we're not going to explore all of that today. And if your marriage is in trouble and you want to talk confidentially, then I will come and listen to you completely and we will pray it through and work it through together. There are no two line answers. But having said that, this is an area in which we are tempted to act in a self-centred and self-protecting way. And Jesus wants to expose what happens when we do that. In marriage, we have two people who've made a commitment to one another. They've entered a covenant, it's a, a technical legal word, for a solemn binding promise. To put the other first. To share their lives, their bodies and possessions with one another. That's what marriage is. It's a commitment to be one rather than two. When we begin to approach that relationship from a self-centred or self-preserving perspective, we narrow down the scope of what we promise to do and widen the scope of excusing ourselves from it. So marriage starts to be judged primarily by what it does for me. I find this a really interesting phenomenon to watch because um, I never practised in family law, but I have studied it to some extent. And one of the things I've noticed moving from being a a lawyer to being a a pastor or priest is that the way that wedding services happen has changed. Now, there's no magic words for getting married in the Bible. It's to do with the commitment. But... I've noticed that as we move towards people constructing their own vows, and I'm not criticising that, if you've done that in your wedding, fine. It's just as binding as anybody else, great. Live up to them. But one of the things I noticed about the phenomenon is that the nature of what's happening has actually changed a little bit. I I noticed that I used to watch uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the comedy police show. Uh, Every week, loved it. Hilariously funny. Two of the main characters get married. In Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I'm not spoiling anything for you, they're engaged for most of the series. Eventually they do get married. And as they get married, they they write their own vows. And they're very funny, it's a very funny show. And everyone is quietly um, cheering for Jake and Amy that they're getting married and uh, impressed. And the vows are all about how the other person makes the person doing the vow feel. It sounds incredible on TV. It's one one of those great kind of romantic moments where um, has that gone off, though. actually one second. There you go. I'll change the battery over because it's being recorded and a number of people have contacted me this week and wanted to make sure it was recorded. So, so Brooklyn Nine-Nine, you have these two characters and uh, Jake and Amy, they're hilariously funny. They are wonderfully played and they get to the point of their wedding and they, they come out with their vows. And I, I forgot to write down what they are, but um, they, the vows are entirely about how the other person makes the person doing the, the promise sound, uh, feel. And, do you want to turn the fan off? You can if you want. Go and turn it off. You're literally huddled. <laughs> it's like an Arctic winter. There we go. Um, they... So he might say to uh, Jake, might say to Amy, Amy, when you come into my life, I feel alive. I feel like there's nothing else. I am certain that there's a hope for me. You know, and all this stuff. It sounds wonderful, and you're in pieces. You know, you're crying, sitting there on the sofa with your popcorn, thinking, "No, thank goodness, no one could see me now because someone's been crying in my eyes." And it sounds lovely, and they're funny as well. So there's a joke about. Um, you can just press it on the thing. There. There we go. What I find hilarious about you all is that you would just sit there and shiver rather than coming turning the fan off. It's not blowing on me. I don't care. Um, they, it's all about how the how the other person makes me feel. That's a really interesting way of seeing marriage. And I don't want to sound too sanctimonious because it's a comedy show. But fundamentally, that's quite a selfish way of seeing marriage. It's actually about me. What happens when she stops making me feel like that? What happens when somebody else starts making me feel like that? You contrast this to um, the old Anglican uh, form of marriage. I promise that I will love you in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, until death do us part. It's not really about me. It's about you. I am promising to love you. I'm not telling you how you make me feel. It's just an interesting change in the way that we see marriage. It's becoming self preserving and self centered. Simultaneously, of course, the available grounds for divorce become looser and looser, right? This is the flip side of the obligations thing. We make the obligations smaller and we make them easier to get out of. Harder and harder to justify, save that one party just no longer wishes to do what they promised. Now, there are, of course, times where divorce is necessary and may even be beneficial. Uh, I, say, I will say again later in the sermon, I'm saying it now so that no one fails to hear this, there is never a situation in which anybody should stick in a marriage where they are being abused by another person. Your first priority is to get safe. And if anyone here is suffering from domestic abuse, or anyone listening to this is suffering from domestic abuse, come and see me and we will make sure you are safe. For example... To give one example. But that's not the way the law works now. The law in England now is that there need be no reason to get divorced at all, save that one party doesn't want to be married anymore. Eventually, so many exceptions are created to the, ori- the original promise has little force. Of course, that means that trust also disappears. So... Um, The system ends up being used for the benefit of the powerful and rich. This is actually what Jesus is critiquing. The background to Jesus' comments here are that divorce law in his society comes to the point where a man could divorce a woman. It was always a man. It was a very patriarchal society. A man could divorce a woman for any reason at all. There is rabbinic uh, precedent on this, law on this, that you could be divorced for burning food. I mean, it's hilarious, isn't it? That's a very funny uh, example. It's actually true, but it was uh, incredibly abusive. What it meant is that men who were the dominant economic providers and had the uh, access to employment could get rid of the wife they promised to provide for to share the money that was produced for, at any point, for any reason. You could never trust someone, because at any moment they could, they could uh, turn their back on their promise. And we're obviously seeking to do it. That's how the precedents come about. If someone goes and says, she burnt the toast this morning, can we get divorced? Can I marry my neighbour? So yes, burnt toast. Tick. Practice became ever more abusive to the economically and socially disadvantaged. In particular, women were forced to have one marriage with little option but to find another man. Anyone who divorces his wife forces her to become a victim of adultery. That's what Jesus is saying is doing. You are forcing her to go and find another husband. Same process is happening now. I don't want to be depressing but I do want to be realistic we all laughed when I said about the burnt toast you could divorce someone for burnt toast but actually English law at the moment has come to the point where there doesn't even need to be any toast the covenant can end simply because one party no longer wants to be bound now you can, argue, you can make an argument for saying that's the correct position for the law to be in but it's certainly not where Christians should be because it's not God's design for us that we can just abandon our promises to one another whenever we feel like it. Marriage is a lifelong and binding commitment for better or for worse. It's a declining idea. And with that idea, trust, decline, trust declines too. You've got to see what the flip side of this is. So when I was training, this is only 15 years ago, 16 years ago, I began to train as a barrister. prenuptial agreements were an exotic American thing that have very little to do with English law. And gradually, the law has developed and developed and developed, again, in the same way that Jesus' law did, always to protect the rich. You 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 live in a society in which people don't keep their promises. Who benefits the rich? So if you're rich and you get married, you protect all of your assets from your spouse. I didn't really mean I will share myself with you. What I really meant is you can have a few thousand in the event of a divorce. Laws had to adapt. Jesus also picks up the common practice of oath swearing. Now this is something that's caused Christians to go nuts for centuries and do very weird things. What is he talking about? It seems like an obscure thing to care about. Especially compared to murder and marriage. But it actually touches on something central to God's intention for humanity. In Jesus' day, people were making commitments to one another and then quibbling over whether the promise or statement was binding based on whether they used exactly the right form of words or whether they uh, could go back on what they said so you would get arguments about whether you say i mean this is um if jesus confronts this in another place in the gospels you can find these and they're actually hilarious if you think about what they are people would make a promise they say I, I swear that i will be there tomorrow and i will give you my goods and i swear by the altar in the temple you think oh he really means it. Okay, well, I'll be there tomorrow and, and he'll give me his goods. And then he would turn up tomorrow and say, aha! I swore by the altar, but I did not swear by the sacrifice on the altar. And therefore, I don't have to do it. See ya." Or they would say, I swear by the altar, but I did not swear by the gold that covers the altar. And therefore, I don't have to do it. I'll, I'll see you later. It's basically acting as if it were a a reasonable approach to go in and say, look, I had my fingers crossed. You know, that's what children do, don't they? Children do that. If you watch children's television, I don't suggest any of you do this, unless you have to. Most of it's terrible. Comes to the conclusion that Power Rangers is probably the single biggest cultural crime perpetrated by the East and West together come a point inevitably in any, if you watch children's television for any period of time in which one person is depicted as saying to another something and then the camera zooms in and you see that behind their back they've got their fingers crossed you're like oh they didn't mean it you think, well, why on earth should it make any difference at all whether you have your fingers crossed or not But yet, that's how the law had developed in Jesus' day people were saying I had my fingers crossed I didn't swear by the Gold on the altar. You can use exactly the right form of words. Have my fingers crossed. This happens all the time. This actually happens in English law as well, because law works like this. this, is how law works. I did a whole case and never actually saw it through to its end. I don't know what happened in the end, but it was predicated. I'm not making this up. Um In fairness, we were acting for the little guys. There were a whole load of people who'd been sold apartments that never really were going to exist. And there was a question about whether we could prove fraud. So we were trying to find another way to make sure that they didn't have to pay for these apartments uh, in a tower block, whether they had the risk or the person who was doing the selling had a risk. And it was a big razzmatazz event. They were invited to a lobby and they were selling out, you know, uh, like selling timeshares, that kind of event, except they were in London. Uh, if you ever get invited to one of those things, don't go. Okay, it's a free piece of legal advice for you. Do not go. Don't go. If you take, I should put that on here. That that is my that is my that's my takeaway for today. My lunchtime summary for today: is Do not buy property or rights in property from people who make presentations in hotel lobbies. It's a terrible idea. We spent the whole time trying to work out whether we can legitimately argue. Bear in mind, we were on the side of the little guys. That when they'd signed the piece of paper that said that they were obliged to buy this flat, it was actually stapled to the rest of the contract or not. Whole le- legal advice was about staples. Right? If it wasn't stapled, we argued, all the terms weren't incorporated and they weren't obliged to complete. Ingenious, no? See? Yeah? That's why I got the big bucks. Now that sounds mad. But we can do that. We can do that. It did not work quite like that. We can fall into this trap personally. I said I'd do this, but I didn't promise them. I never promised, I only said it. I didn't swear by the altar, I swore by the gifts on the altar. I had my fingers crossed. The contract wasn't stapled. I didn't promise her I'd be there, I just said I'd be there. I didn't promise them I'd give it to them, I just said I'd do it. Jesus ends up saying, look, when you say yes, you should mean yes. It shouldn't be, I promise yes. When you say no, you should mean no. Or we can tell stories that make ourselves look great and somebody else look bad. and They just get more and more exaggerated. When you, when you say something, it should correspond to what's real. All this is very different from God. God is faithful. His steadfast love never ceases. He keeps his word. When God says something, it is true and trustworthy and can be relied upon. God keeps his promises even when we break ours. The whole of biblical history is the story of God's unfailing, uncompromising commitment to his people and to humanity more broadly. Now, we often talk about that in terms of God's love. God loves you. He loves you. God is love. And that's great. It's true. But it can be misleading. But you see, love in our culture is something we feel that changes over time. I'm not condemning that use of the word love. It's just how the word is used. Now, we talk about feeling in love with someone. We marry because we feel love for someone. And if we cease to feel love towards them, and we start to feel love towards someone else, then we get... Rid of this relationship and start this one. If we think of God's love like that, we're totally missing the point. God's love endures not because he's continually in love with us, or happy with us, or even likes us. There are times when we are foul to one another and to God. Even us nice, polite, middle-class people are foul to one another and to God. But with humanity, you only got to think for 30 seconds about the last century and realise there are times when humanity is really foul to each other. And totally ignores God. Disregards everything he's ever said about how we should live and who he is. God is not always in love with humanity... would be really, really weird if he was. there are times when he should be furious. there are times when God mourns over our rejection of him you read the Bible God describes his mourning it's like, "I can't believe you did this it makes me feel so sad. The way you treated each other there are times when God is angered by our behavior. There are times when it would be far easier for God to walk away from us than stick with us, and he would be totally justified in doing it. But God's love is faithful. It is steadfast. It is a choice God makes to commit himself to our good and our redemption, even in the face of our rejection of him and his ways. This is true love. Because it chooses to be faithful and committed and it keeps its word. You see, God doesn't act from self-preservation. We are always thinking, how can I protect myself in case this person hurts me? That's what's at the root of everything we've talked about so far. It's, 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 it's two things are at its root. One, the desire that I get something from you. And two, the desire to protect myself from you. That's what makes us act selfishly. It's what makes us break our promises. What well, stops us having integrity? God isn't like that. He totally commits himself to the good of others, even when it hurts himself. That's what the cross is all about. That's what Jesus Christ is all about. Is The love of God is so committed to human beings that it is willing to give its own life for them. So far from protecting himself from us, he handed himself over to us. That's what love is. He commits and is faithful to what he said. In the story of Adam and Eve, it's a kind of archetypal story of humanity and humanity's relationship with God. However else you regard it. Is an archetype of, of, of the way human beings relate to God. When when Adam and Eve betray each other and God, God's first word to them is, This is gonna have consequences. You've got to know that. That is gonna destroy your relationship with each other. You've chosen to turn on each other, you've chosen to ignore me, it's gonna have consequences for your relationship for me and your relationship with each other. His second word is, But I'm gonna come and rescue you. Right there in Genesis three. Something, depending on the layout of your Bible, four pages into a book, 12 to 1,300 pages long. God's word is, I'm coming to bring you back. When Jesus comes, throughout the whole of human history, all of the wars and suffering and pain and betrayal and anger and child sacrifice and everything else that God has had to put up with from human beings... God kept his promise. He commits and is faithful to what he said. He has integrity. The effect of this is that it restores and repairs relationships. It redeems other people rather than using them. This is who God is and it's who we should be. It finds its ultimate expression in Jesus. When Jesus was about to die, he explained what he was doing by taking bread broke the bread, said, this is my body that's for you. Okay, what's he doing there? He's saying, I want you to understand, God's love is broken. God's love is not self-preserving. God's love is broken for other people. Then he took the, 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 the cup and he said, this is wine, but it's also my blood. I want you to understand, my blood is poured out as a new covenant, a new promise by God to you. God kept the old promise all the way through from Genesis 3 to now. The promises he made to Moses from then till now. Now I'm making a promise. The promise is made, I, I want you, I'm taking it so seriously that it's in my own blood. If you trust in Christ, then that promise is for you. You are within the never-ending, never-stopping, always-forgiving, no-excuse-making, radically-committed love of God. And that promise will never fail because God never fails. He isn't going to narrow it down and create exceptions. He's all in for you. All in. I want to say three areas where we can apply practically. If you're struggling this morning with anxiety or uh, about the future or a sense of guilt or a lack of faith, maybe doubt. That's fine. God's word to you is that he's faithful. While we are faithless, He is He's faithful. He does not turn his back on us. He's totally trustworthy. He will forgive us if we come to him. He will hold you whatever the future holds. Second, I want to ask if we're people of integrity. Are we people who are trusted? Do we mean what we say? This is about being secure enough in God's love and power not to act from self-preservation or self-centeredness. It sounds small, but it's actually revolutionary for the lives of people around you. Let's be people who go all in for committing to others, saying what we mean and then doing what we say. It's who God is and it's who we should be too. Third, we should be people who are absolutely committed to marriage, to supporting marriage. If you're not married right now, if you're uh, uh, widowed or you've never got married or you're divorced, you can still be involved in this, you can support the marriages of people around you. If you're married, then don't countenance divorce. As I said before, there may be times when divorce is permissible or even helpful. No one should suffer abuse from anyone else, nor should we gloss over or ignore the pain of unfaithfulness. But these are aberrations. They're not the norm. These are signs that something's gone seriously wrong. They're not what we should expect. Be radically committed to seeking each other's good. When times are hard, get help. Go to counselling or seek guidance. When times are good... Invest in giving yourself to each other and develop the habit of putting your partner first. You see, God is absolutely faithful and trustworthy and he wants us to be the same. I'm going to leave a couple of minutes while we just sit in silence and just have a chance to pray or to think or just to be. If you're not someone who prays, then don't worry. Just sit and see if God prompts you to do something. And then I'm going to invite us to Stand and to sing. Jesse's going to lead us in singing some songs. There's going to be an opportunity for prayer. If you'd like prayer, I'm going to to give an opportunity to put your hand up and say, Actually, I'd really like prayer while the singing's going on, or prayer Mm -hmm. at the back. It might be for nothing to do with this, it might be something completely different. Let's just be quiet now and say, Father, come. Come, Holy Spirit. Speak with each one of us, speak to us, meet with us, open our hearts to you. We pray, Come, Holy Spirit. Minister grace and love. I just have it in my heart as we sit that there's someone here who's feeling like they've fallen a long way away from God and actually God wants to say my grace is enough for you. I was where you were, I am where you are and I love you still. I just encourage you, if that's you, if you sense that, just respond to him in the silence. I often say if you're someone who's, who's setting out on the path of prayer and trying to learn how to pray, then um, what I was just doing there is I've actually memorised the Lord's Prayer. It's part of the reason we pray every week. You know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, and so on. And then I, I use it as a pattern for my praying. So I'm, I'm not just coming to it cold and thinking, what should I say now? I'm actually saying, following through the pattern Jesus prayed, and I begin by saying, actually, God, I want to acknowledge who you are. So however big the problems I face, you're bigger than them. You know, that's our Father in heaven. And actually, I want you to be glorified. You're love. So what I'm praying for is love to come in the world and grace and peace to come in the world. And then I just work my way through it, praying for myself and other people. And if you are someone who's saying out and trying to learn how to pray and you're not sure about it, then the best way is to learn that prayer that Jesus taught and learn it by heart And then to start to play around it. Um, When I was learning how to be a jazz musician, that was how we always used to do it. We used to learn, you would learn scales, you'd learn set pieces of music. And then when you knew them well enough, you started to play around with them. So that you could make new tunes out of those tunes that you'd already learned. And the same is true with prayer. Prayer is a bit like jazz. Uh, it's, It's based on a form... But then we let the Spirit inspire us to do something new with it as well. And actually, I want, <laughs> I want all of you to be jazz prayers. So, uh, I mean, that sounds silly, doesn't it? But, I, but I'm being serious. That if, you, if you are someone who's wanting to set out on that journey of talking with God regularly, that's a really helpful way of doing it. It's not the only way. Find your own way. There is no right or wrong way. But that is one way of doing it. And I think that's helpful.